Please be seated. Uh, there are places uh, for sure throughout the world that have shaped the course of history. Uh, places in some ways that we might uh, consider or call Hollywood ground. Uh, and many of us, I'm sure, have been to places like this. A place like uh, Normandy, France, uh, Omaha Beach on D-Day. A place that radically shaped history. Or a place like Gettysburg, if you've walked through the fields or driven through the fields where the Battle of Gettysburg took place, and you stand and realize that in this place uh, at one time, the destiny of thousands and thousands of people, thousands of men, even the destiny of a whole nation in certain ways, hung in the balance. Or what about Ground Zero, if you've been there a little bit closer to home? A place that in many ways represents tremendous loss, but also a place that represents a complete change in the way people would view the world. And certain places have this kind of effect. It's certainly true for many people who visit parts of the Holy Land, places that represent something much bigger and much greater than our individual selves. History and world-shaping places. Well, as we continue in the Gospel of Matthew, toward the end of Matthew 2, in our series there, surprisingly, it's actually geography, it's physical location that really takes center stage, and Matthew wants us to see it in the story, in the text, in the coming and infancy of Christ. Perhaps more accurately, we could say it's Christ Jesus in where he is taken in his travels that is to grab our attention, because It's in these particular places that the person of Christ and the promises of God are fulfilled before us. So if you turn in God's word to Matthew chapter 2, we will continue in Matthew. Matthew 1 and 2 focus on the coming of the Lord Jesus. Matthew has emphasized the genealogy of the Lord Jesus and the birth narrative. And here he continues addressing the infancy of Christ. Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Listen now to God's word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, or under two years old, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, throughout this narrative and this uh, text, there's much more going on than first meets uh, the eye. And much of what gives shape, as you've perhaps noticed, in the text is physical location. It's the geography. It's the places and the path which our Lord travels or the path in which he is taken. And the reason that these places and this path have such significance is because it is clear it's within them that the fulfillment of God's purposes are coming to pass. And Matthew's emphasizing that. And so when we read a passage like this, one thing becomes very clear to us, and that is the path our Lord travels, the path that he has taken, is God-ordained. It is God-purposed. Each place... The entire path that the Lord is taking is the result, we're told, of one fulfillment after another. That's noteworthy. If that's not noteworthy enough, it's also noteworthy the kind of path in which he takes, because it is not safe. It is the God-ordained path. It is the good and right path. But it is not safe. We see it in the circumstances surrounding the coming of Christ and his birth, particularly emphasized in Luke's gospel, that he comes into a very cold and unwelcoming world. And we see it here in his infancy. He is taken from the stability of his home into Egypt as a refugee. The very beginning of his life. The last thing we would say that marked the birth and infancy of our Lord Jesus is that of safety. And yet I think Matthew is beginning to reveal something that we're going to see through the Gospel of Matthew. It's not only the path of our Lord, it's the path of all the followers of the Lord. It is an unsafe path. It's good. It's a glorious path, but it is not for our personal gratification or our mere physical comfort or our personal ease. Have you noticed in your life that things do not always work out the way you wanted them to? The way that you planned them? The way that you think they should be? No wonder, no wonder Proverbs 16 says, The heart of a man plans his ways, but the Lord determines his steps. Now, if you're like me, you love that passage. But what about when it brings real pain in life? What about when it brings real hardship or a level of uncertainty in your life? 
Our will and God's ways do not always match. That may be true for you in your life right now. Perhaps the path God has you on in your workplace seems uncertain or even hostile, an unwelcoming place. Your future seems uncertain. Or you're in a relationship with someone in which the path seems, seems very rocky, troublesome. Whether it is our personal faith or it is the path of this particular congregation, the past, the present, and the future are God-ordained. God-purposed. Maybe God is calling you to something that seems uncertain. Maybe God is calling to us, calling us to something that seems uncertain or unsafe. That is certainly the calling of Joseph repeatedly through this story. Joseph is called to take his wife, called to take Mary, and the infant, Christ, from one place to another. There's a level of uncertainty, to be sure. I like what the Christian author Gary Haugen said. God, our Heavenly Father, is a good Father, and therefore He loves us deeply enough to clarify the important choices of life. And here's one choice that our Father wants us to understand as Christians. He says, I believe this is the choice of our age. Do we want to be brave or safe? Gently, lovingly, our Heavenly Father wants us to know we simply cannot be both. Maybe it's not the question of the age, but it's an important one. And this is the path that we see here in Matthew. Now, I want us to notice how Matthew has arranged this portion of his gospel. The story has three very simple movements through it. Uh, geographical movements. First is the flight from Bethlehem, from Israel, down to Egypt in verses 13 to 15 because of Herod's threat. Second, you have Jesus' time remaining in Egypt while Herod is destroying the male children in Israel, uh, verses 16 to 18. And then third is the journey back from Egypt to Israel, specifically to Nazareth, in verses 19 to 23. But there's a whole set of threes in this text. It's not just three geographical moves. There's a number of additional threes. Joseph has three dreams in the story, three angel appearances, in verses 13, 19, and 22. They're all giving direction to Joseph about where to go. There's also three, we might say, obediences. Each time that God reveals himself to Joseph, Joseph uh, obeys. He responds in obedience to God's direction. And there are three fulfillments. Each move, each new geographical place is specifically identified as the fulfillment of an Old Testament scripture. And even though there's a number of threes, there's really one strand that runs all the, all the way through this text, and that is God's protection and preservation of his Son, because it is in his Son that a redemption will be accomplished for us. 
That's the strand that runs through. God is going to protect and preserve the Son of God because it is in Him that we have life and have hope. We'll look at the first movement from Israel to Egypt in verse 13. It says, Now when they had departed, referring to the Magi, remember, who had come from the east to worship the infant Christ, Behold, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother, flee to Egypt, remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose, took the child and his mother by night, departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, quote, Out of Egypt I called my son. As I said, there's more than first meets the eye. In this text, at first it may seem like a simple geographical move that Matthew is identifying and recognizing from Bethlehem and Israel down to Egypt. But remember Matthew's primary audience. Matthew first has in mind his fellow Jews as he's writing, it's first aimed at his fellow Jews, those who are familiar with the Old Testament story and Old Testament texts. Matthew wants to show that this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. He's the son of Abraham. He is the long-anticipated Savior in whom the Old Testament story and Old Testament promises point forward. And so as you take the time upon closer examination, you realize that the same path that the Lord Jesus takes is the path that the patriarchs took. In fact, it's the path that Israel took. And Matthew wants us to see it. So, for example, after Abraham is called by God in Genesis chapter 12, called to go to the land of Canaan, the promised land, we're told in chapter 12, verse 10, quote, there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. In fact, it's not just Abraham. It's from Abraham all the way to Joseph. Joseph, We see the patriarchs follow a similar pattern. Jacob goes down to Egypt several times. Joseph finds himself in slavery in Egypt. But it's not just the patriarchs. Most importantly, Israel as a nation finds themselves enslaved down in Egypt. This is the experience of Israel and of Moses, who will be called to lead the people out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, one might think, well, Jesus' route from Bethlehem, from Israel down to Egypt is just coincidental with the patriarchs or with Israel or with Moses. Except we're specifically told the reason for this in verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, out of Egypt I called my son. Where are these words from? It's from the prophet Hosea. If you turn in your Bibles, I'll give you a moment to Hosea. It's chapter 11, and I think the surrounding words just around what Matthew quotes are significant. Getting at the heart of what Matthew's driving home. Matthew is drawing back upon This time in the history of Israel and the people of God in the 8th century during the time of the prophet Hosea. It's a time marked by rebellion. 
and sin and waywardness among the people of God. It was a time of impending judgment that God would bring upon his people. And you come to Hosea, and the Lord speaks through the prophet and says this to his people. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. The more they were called, the more they went away. See, throughout the Old Testament, Israel as a nation is called God's son. Deuteronomy 8, verse 32. Israel, the sons of God. Exodus 4, verse 22. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. See, God had set his love and his affection upon the nation of Israel. Out of all the nations, he set his love and grace upon them. His child. But this child was a prodigal. This child went away again and again, a rebellious child, a rebellious son, wayward again and again. It's the story of the people of God, a people who go astray again and again. Can you relate to that? Can I relate to that? Do we not experience a going astray in our lives? It can come and surface in many ways in our lives and in our hearts. It could surface with hard hearts, harsh words toward those closest to us in our lives. It could come in the form of complete indifference about the lost all around us. It could come in the form of needing always things to be done in my way. Innumerable are the ways that we go astray as a people, as the people of God. We sing it in that wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Those words, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Have you known that in your own life, that wandering, that going astray? Matthew wants us to see it. Because in this one verse here in Hosea, I think Matthew is opening a window into the reality of our sin and into the remedy for sin. The more they were called, the more they went away. That all of us are prone. It's the old man. It's the old nature that surfaces. We're all prone to leave the God we love. And I think we are prone in usually one of two ways. Either running from God, running from the law of God, being a law unto ourselves. It's really the path of self-discovery. Many people are on it. I'll go my own way. I'll go my own route. Or people will seek for approval and acceptance by the God in whom they believe through a kind of moral conformity. Thinking to themselves wrongly, I'm God's son, 
I'm God's daughter because I obey God. Friends, you did not become a child of God, and you do not remain a child of God because of your obedience. You became a child, and you remain a child because of the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. His obedience in life, his obedience even unto death. Our obedience, it's not the cause of our sonship. It's the evidence of our sonship in the Lord Jesus. Prone to leave the God I love. Of course, that hymn doesn't end there. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. When Matthew draws from Hosea's words, out of Egypt I called my son, he's pointing the people of God not to Moses, who led the people out of slavery in Egypt. He's pointing, like the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 3, to a much greater Moses. He's pointing to one who is bringing a new exodus, who's beginning something new, an exodus out of sin's dominion and guilt, an exodus from the consequences of sin. It's an exodus from death itself, from the judgment and wrath of God. And he's not pointing to the sons of Israel as God's chosen. He is pointing to the true Israel of God in whom is our redemption. The forgiveness of sins. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew's saying, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Son of God, the greater Moses, the true Israel, in whom the people of God find their hope and their redemption. I think in a most powerful way, Matthew is really giving us a kind of map, leading his readers to what's obvious to most or all of us to the Lord Jesus Christ in whom is our salvation. How many are the kinds of worldly maps are, that people are trying to use today to navigate life, to deal with discouragement or plans interrupted, or sin, or death, loss in life, or a crisis of identity and life purpose? In what are people seeking for purpose and direction and hope? The economist E.F. Shoemaker tells about a visit that he had to St. Petersburg, Russia. It's a great story. During the days in Russia of the Soviet era and communism, and there as he walked through St. Petersburg, he said that despite having a map in his hands, he was completely lost. Because what he saw on paper was simply not matching with what was right in front of his eyes, which were several large Russian Orthodox churches, unmistakable with their large golden domes. They simply weren't on the map. And yet, he said it was certain, he was certain of what street he was on. Finally, a tourist guide came to him, came to his aid, and he said, oh, that's simple, I can explain that to you. We don't show churches on our maps at all. 
It's in the days of communism. We don't show any churches on our maps. And Shoemaker said, It then occurred to me that this is not the first time I had been given a map which failed to show many of the things right in front of my eyes. It's true. How many are the maps today that people are using or they are offered to navigate this world to try and find purpose or significance or understanding? Some people are seeking to climb the corporate ladder. That's their world. That's what makes sense to them. That's the purpose of life. Or the hope for more material goods. Affluence in life. Or the pursuit after personal achievement. That's where they find their, their personal satisfaction. Karma. I've met numerous people. That's how they make sense of the world. How things work out. Karma. It's all around us. Or just trying to be a good person. That's my worldview, some would say. Well, Matthew's map brings us from Israel down to Egypt and points us to the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. Out of Egypt I called my son. And this is the one in whom our redemption is found. But then Matthew, secondly here, emphasizes Jesus' stay in Egypt. Again, each geographical place is reinforced through the fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 16, Then Herod in his fury sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under. The New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg estimates about 20 male children put to death in this area. Herod had been ruling for decades in Judea. Uh, His ruthlessness, his paranoia had been increasing. It had been growing over the years to the point that the late James Montgomery Boyce says, quote, Herod murdered his favorite wife, which I thought was an interesting combination of words that Boyce used, um, murdered and favorite wife, uh, Miriam, he had her two sons strangled and another son put to death. And yet, while Herod, Herod is carrying out this horrific act, where is Jesus? He is protected, he is preserved down in Egypt, just like Moses in Exodus chapter 2. After he is born, Moses is preserved. He's hidden for three months from the murderous efforts of Pharaoh. So Jesus, the greater Moses, is hidden from the massacre of King Herod. Friends, if Jesus, the Son of God, the creator of heaven and earth, needed protection, preservation, in the midst of an evil world, how much more do you and I This was to fulfill the words of Jeremiah, he says. It's Jeremiah 31. Which, if you know any chapter in Jeremiah, this is perhaps the chapter we know. It's the chapter that contains the promise of the new covenant. These words come prior to that promise of the new covenant. It's these words. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, 
Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Jeremiah is using the matriarch, Rachel, during the time of the patriarchs to personify, to represent the Israelite mothers as their sons were being taken into exile, passing by Ramah, north of Jerusalem. And Matthew, what's he doing? He's applying this to the mothers of the first century, weeping and in anguish over Herod's massacre of the children. This picture reminds us of the world into which our Lord Jesus came, and it's to remind us of the world in which you and I live. It can be a hostile world, a world full of suffering, a world of loss, a world of death. And we should note something deeply significant about suffering that not only begins here in Matthew's Gospel, but that's going to run through all of his Gospel. And that is, as Jesus comes into the world, he does not remove his people from suffering. And he does not remove suffering from his people. He does something much, much greater. He comes. He comes and enters into our world of suffering. Because he wants us to see in the midst of suffering and in the midst of pain his immeasurable greatness. And that's how he magnifies it. That's how he demonstrates it. Not to remove trial or suffering from us, but to be with us in it. He gives to us the greatest treasure. He knows what is the greatest treasure and gift. And it's the gift of his presence. It's the gift of himself. Matthew's already emphasized this in chapter 1, that he will be called Jesus, which means Savior, and Emmanuel, God, with us. John Piper says, It seems to me that Christians in the West are being coddled. We suffer little in the name of Christ. Therefore, we read the Bible not with a desperate hunger for evidences of God's triumph in pain, but with a view to improving our private pleasures. Therefore, we read the Bible selectively. We pick a text here and there to fit our felt needs. What is missing is the Bible. I mean the whole Bible, with its blood and guts and sins and horrors and all of it under the massive hand of God. The hand whose fingers flick stars into being. The hand that gives life and takes life. The hand that rules everything. Everything. What we need to know is the great things about God. Knowing great things about God will make us ready not to collapse under the cataclysmic conflict and personal catastrophe. For these are coming. I say this not as one with my finger in the wind, but in the Bible. Acts 4, through, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom. John 15, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Romans 8, we are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him. A voice was heard, weeping, 
and loud lamentation. This is our world. This is God's world. What's curious to me is that while so much of our culture rejects the biblical God because he permits suffering to exist, at the very same time, we worship this same God whose central act is his own suffering. It's amazing. While our culture rejects the biblical God because he is allowing suffering to exist, though he has the power to end it, we at the same time worship before this God who himself has suffered for us, even to the point of death, enduring the cross for our salvation. Our ultimate protection, our eternal preservation is not in the absence of suffering or hardship. It is through the one who enters our suffering to be with us, to be our refuge. That's the God we worship. And that's why we sing, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. He's the Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Just before his execution in 1945, at the age of 39, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran theologian and pastor who had opposed Hitler's Nazi Germany, a leader in the confessing church calling out the sin of the church in Germany, he had smuggled out of his prison cell a small piece of paper with these words on it. Only the suffering God can help us now. Only the suffering God can help us now. What a God we serve. What a God we worship. Much could be said about suffering in the world, but one thing that cannot be said is that God, our God, is somehow indifferent. For this God bears the marks of suffering upon himself. This is a God who has entered into a suffering world to bear suffering for his people. Matthew points us to our redemption in Christ. In those words from Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. He emphasizes the preservation, the protection that Christ and the people of Christ have in him. And then finally, a final move from Egypt back to Israel. After Herod dies. Verse 21. Joseph rose... He took the child and his mother. He went to the land of Israel, but being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets, once again, might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, search as you may. I did a good amount of searching on this. There is no Old Testament text uh, that Matthew is directly quoting. And yet he says this was to fulfill what the prophets had spoken. More likely, commentators suggest that this is a theme throughout the scriptures. The theme that Nazareth in the district of Galilee was a seemingly insignificant place. It's an obscure place. 
And it's a place that was loathed in Jesus' own day. We read in John chapter 1, verse 46, as Jesus began his ministry calling disciples to himself, it says, Philip found Nathanael, saying, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Nathanael said, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Or in John 7, the Pharisees, they say, Certainly no prophet will arise from Galilee. In fact, the first century historian, the Jewish historian Josephus, when listing the towns, recording the towns throughout Galilee, doesn't even make mention of Nazareth. That obscure, that insignificant of a village or town, not even made mention of. And yet our Lord was going there to make it his home. Is Matthew perhaps communicating to us the lowly estate in which Jesus came? That he came to take a low place in history. Obscurity. And yet to be with us. To be for us. Nazareth, I think it's like saying... Vernon. That, that's where I live. <laughs> or Coventry. Co- Co- Coven where? Where? Nazareth. As one person said, it's Nowheresville. It's Nowheresville, Nazareth. Yet he comes to identify with a lowly people. In a a sense, nobodies. That's what we are, in a way. And yet it's this path, from Israel to Egypt, from Egypt to Nazareth, but most importantly, the path that Matthew's driving us to is the final place that Jesus is going to come to, the place of the skull, Golgotha. It's the place of the cross. That's where our hope is. The message of the gospel leads us to the cross. To him who knew no sin, who became sin for us, uh, that we might become the righteousness of God. He's the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the clarity of your word that drives us to the centrality of the person, the wonderful and glorious person of Jesus Christ. May the eyes of our hearts be fixed upon him. Rock of ages cleft for me. For all of us, O Lord, may we find, may we hide ourselves in thee for our redemption and our preservation and for your ongoing work of sanctification and change and transformation in our lives. We thank you, O Lord, that you have not left us to ourselves that out of Egypt you called your Son, 
He is our hope and our salvation. And we pray, O Lord, by your Spirit, that you would drive these words and apply these words into the very fabric of our lives. For while we are one body and one spirit, we are individual members with individual lives. And yet you are at work in each of us. And Lord, in our lives, may we display the splendor and the majesty of who you are. For this we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.